Tick-tock, tick-tock, thus goes the clock. Real time. We sleep in real time. We eat in real time. We work in real time. We play in real time. But what about our Christian faith? Do we live it out, really, in real time? Join us for the sermon series, Christianity in Real Time. Take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11 and read through chapter 3, verse 1. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, reading through chapter 3, verse 1. If you're able to stand to honor God in the reading of His Word, would you stand with me, please? But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him, that is Paul, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, he separated himself, he feared the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners yet. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He died in vain. He died for nothing. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Open our eyes now by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can behold wondrous things in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I hope you know this. Christianity does not consist 
simply and only in a confession of faith we make in Jesus that secures for us forgiveness from our sins and a future with God forever in heaven. I hope you know that. It does consist of that. From our perspective, this is where Christianity begins, not from God's perspective. God's perspective begins in his eternal plan to save sinners. It continues in his coming in the Lord Jesus Christ to do in and through Jesus Christ everything that is necessary to save sinners. And that happened at the cross and through the resurrection. And then God from heaven sends his Holy Spirit to sinners who see the beauty and majesty of God. They behold the bounty of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And we are brought under conviction for our sin. And we are compelled, as it were, to turn to Jesus in faith and to confess him as Lord. And then the Christian life begins. Then what it means to be a Christian begins to unfold from that confession so that we never must reduce Christianity to that confession. Because that confession is simply the starting block for a long, long race. Now turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Many of us know these verses, but in these verses we see the essence of Christianity in its beginning in terms of what it means to come to faith in Jesus. Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There are three things here that are absolutely critical that often in our culture we blow by, we pass over, we diminish, and sometimes we... Dismiss. Number one, to be a Christian means that you stand before God and the world and confess Jesus is Lord. Now, our response to that is, so what? I believe he is Lord and I will stand and confess he is Lord. But Paul wrote that in a context where it was costly to say that. And that is the context that must be in play for us to understand what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. The Roman Empire was the empire that ruled everything and everyone, and the Roman emperor had come to see himself as Lord. And he asked every citizen in the Roman Empire to say that he is Lord. Once a year, they had to say, Caesar is Lord. There are no other lords. Caesar is Lord. So what if you wouldn't say that? Well, there was a heavy fine to be paid. You most likely would lose your job. Your family would not have food on the table until you said those words. If you persisted in not saying those 
words, you could do jail time. And if you persisted after jail time, you could just go missing. Where's Bob? He was in the marketplace here with us last week when we were drinking tea and having conversation. Has anybody seen Bob? No, I haven't seen Bob. Let's go look for Bob. Where is Bob? We can't find Bob. Nobody knows where Bob is and his family's not talking because he continued to insist that Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now that's where... It starts in being a Christian. We stand before God and we stand before the world and we say there is no other Lord in my life but Jesus and I'm surrendered to him, I'm submitted to him, I love him, I'm going to seek to be loyal to him and we do that because we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. If you say with your lips, confess with your lips, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, that means you know, you're convinced that God raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. What you're saying is the only person in human history who has been raised from the dead, who continues to be alive, is Jesus Christ. He is the only way to God. There's no other way to God. I must submit and surrender my life to Jesus. And the outcome is that... We, Romans 10, 9 and 10, we will be saved. Now, you read that in Greek, you read it in Chinese, you read it in German. The the grammar is all the same. In English, will be is what tense? Future. So to become a Christian is to bring your life under the lordship of Jesus and to begin to live out under the authority of the word of God as a part of the people of God before the world for God's glory, what it means to say and then to manifest in our lives Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. To become a Christian in our culture has become relatively simple and easy. To be a Christian is demanding. And somewhere in our Christian life, I think all of us come to the place where we see that This is how I became a Christian, and God begins to work in your life. You begin to read the Bible. You begin really to listen to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. You begin to pray. You begin to get involved in Bible studies. And all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, maybe a month down the road, maybe two months down the road, what you see is living under the Lordship of Jesus demands everything of me. That's when the crisis comes. Do I really believe that Jesus is Lord? Now, there's going to be a graph on the screen. I hope. Yeah, there it is. Now, what I want you to see is a picture of my spiritual growth from the moment I was converted till now. You see what it is? (laughs) 
If you believe that, I've got property in the Okefenokee Swamp. I'd love to sell you. Wouldn't this be great? You, you get converted and then you just keep growing and you keep growing and you keep growing and then one day, voila, you're in heaven. Wouldn't we love that? Now let go to the next slide. I want you to see what's real. This is what's real. See that? Now you know what? The only thing wrong with that slide for me, for me personally, is uh, I've got those dips uh, maybe yours are like that. Mine sometimes are a lot deeper. I mean, like, I've had seasons in my life when I felt like not only was I asleep to Jesus, I've had seasons when I felt like I was dead to Jesus. It's jagged. It's growing. It's changing. What a wonderful change in my heart has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. But the journey, and the journey is what matters. The travel is what matters. And behind the travel, supporting the travel, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true gospel. The true gospel will confront you and me with the absolute non-negotiable Lordship of Jesus. Every other gospel will diminish the Lordship of Jesus. It was happening at Galatia. It happens in Waynesboro. It happens everywhere in the world. Paul writes Galatians because... After he had left this territory where it was tough to preach the gospel because the people were hard, it was a rough region in which to live, and thus people had grown tough in their approach to life. After he left Galatia, having preached the gospel, seen people come to faith in Jesus, there were those who came behind him, after him, and they preached another gospel. It produced two groups of people in Galatia. Uh, group number one, you see this on your outline, were professing Christians whose identity as Christians was tied to their confession that was rooted in an experience and a decision. They made a decision for Jesus. They had some kind of experience with Jesus. They were living a basically good and decent life but not under the lordship of Jesus. Group number two, we're professing Christians whose identity as Christians is tied absolutely to living under and living out what it means day by day that we say Jesus is Lord. Two groups because there were two gospels. I got to tell you, I like group one better. I wish that were true, but group two is what the gospel produces and only can be produced by the gospel. So when Paul shows up in Galatia or writes this letter to the churches, he's livid. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. I am astonished. 
I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. They want to tweak it a little bit. They want to twist it a little bit. They want to make it easier for you to become a Christian in name only. But even if we, listen to what he says, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The word accursed here is the translation of a word that if I said it in English, it would be, well, I wouldn't do it because it would not be good for the ears of younger folks. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you see, let him be accursed. False gospels combine liberalism and legalism. Here's the liberalism. God loves you, and it is seen in Jesus coming to save you. And when Jesus saves you, he saves you so that you can enjoy a good life now and an even greater life after you die. It's combined with legalism. What you need to do is be baptized, keep a few rules, and try to live a morally decent life. That's not the gospel. But it's easy to hear and it's easy to receive and believe. And Paul writes to these churches in Galatia to expose the false gospel and to communicate the true gospel in chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. That's the center of the letter that he is writing. It represents a connection between the false gospel and the true gospel. And in that connection... We see how the gospel works. Chapter 3, verse 1, listen to what Paul says. O foolish, O foolish Galatians. Let me give you a better rendition of the word foolish. You heard it today in Psalm 92, and Josh referred to it in his reflection. You know what a better rendition is? It's a cruel word. It's the word stupid. How did you get stupid? What happened to you? Who bewitched you? He raises two questions. Who bewitched you? How did you get stupid? Who bewitched you? The word bewitched is a term related to hell. Uh, who, who brought the devil's word to you? How did you get so deceived? Well, I want you to see in this text what happens. It can happen to any one of us that causes us to turn the truth of the gospel into something it isn't, and then our lives are no longer being changed by the truth of the gospel because we have believed and based our lives on a false gospel. Two things happen because this is what I believe, and I talked about this last week. I want to just talk about it briefly again. I think there are many people in this room who as believers, when you became a believer, you had no idea really what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. No idea. 
But you got in church and you were being taught the word of God. You're going to Sunday school. And then somewhere along the way, it hits you. Wow. This is what it means to be a Christian. Uh, This is real. That's where the crisis comes. And it has to do with two issues. Whether we're going to please people or whether we're going to be pleasing to God. Whether we're going to live to please people or whether we're going to live to please God. Now, there's some ears in this room that hear this, that you hear it this way. Al, can I be in the middle? <laughs> I I want to be pleasing to God, but I want to be pleasing to people too. Can I be in the middle? Look at the situation here that Paul is addressing. Chapter 2, verse 11. Here's the situation. When Cephas came to Antioch, that is Peter. This is Peter who preached at Pentecost and didn't care with who was pleased with him. This is Peter who stood before the Sanhedrin and said, you can put us in prison, you can put us to death, we're going to preach the gospel. This is Peter who had seen the vision from God that God does not pay attention to ethnic identity or national identity or cultural identity. He doesn't care about those things. But something happened in Galatia. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That word condemned means he was under the judgment of God. God had removed from him his blessing. Because there in Galatia, while Peter was there as one of the apostles, one of the teachers of the church, one of the preachers, one of the spiritual leaders, before certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles. Peter was Jewish. And Peter started eating with these Gentiles. They introduced him to country ham. He had never had country ham before. One night he had backbone for supper. Some of you don't even know what that is. His mouth is still drooling with barbecue. Pork chops on his breath. These Jewish leaders show up in Galatia and Peter says, "Uh uh-oh, these are the big boys. These are the religious elite. So look what he does. He drew back. That means he just stayed away. He would walk into a restaurant where the Gentiles were eating at a table and they would call out to him, Hey, Seif! Hey, Seif! And he would act like he was deaf. He separated himself from them. And he had such influence that he even drew other people away. That if if Peter's going to reject the gospel, if Peter is going to move away from these Gentiles, 
Uh, he was so influential that he even drew Barnabas, one of the greatest leaders in the early church. He even drew Barnabas away. Paul knew what was at stake here. When I saw, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, what's at stake here is the gospel. The gospel that we believe and receive and that changes us. Peter confronts him. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you accept what these Jewish leaders are saying to these Christian Gentiles? What they're saying is wrong. What they're saying is outside the gospel. And what binds us together is... The gospel. Do you know as a professing Christian, you can get to the place in your life where Satan puts in your life people that are not followers of Jesus, but they're so important to you and you so much want to be a part of their group that you would rather die than not live in a way that's pleasing to them. And without you even knowing it, your witness to the gospel is devastatingly destroyed. Because you would rather be pleasing to people than pleasing to God. What a wonderful change. In my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I gave my life to Jesus in 1969, in the summer of 1969. I was going into my senior year of high school. I had not, I had no friends that were believers. Every friend I had went to church every Sunday. I was the only friend that didn't go. They were absolutely astoundingly religious, but they weren't saved. They were in the youth group. They were in every activity of the church, but they weren't saved. I walked away from them because I was not strong enough or mature enough. Then in the fall of 1969, I've never forgotten this. I don't want to ever forget it. In the fall of 1969, some of my friends invited me to come to Augusta, Georgia, to a college night. Oh, man, come with us. We'll have a great time. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to witness to them. They had other plans. And that night, in order to please them, I did things that were contrary to who a Christian is and what a Christian does. Now, those who have a cheap gospel would say, what's the big deal? I got home that night, I cried all night. I had failed Jesus. 
the next day at school, it was horrible. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I never felt worse in my life. I'm on my way across the street from the school to the gym for football practice. A ninth grade girl who had started coming to church, her home life was horrible. She had no knowledge. She was like me. She had no knowledge of Jesus, but she started coming to our church. I taught a Bible study every Monday night in our church. She came to the Bible study, and she walked up to me, and she said to me with tears pouring down her face, if it is real for anybody, I thought it would be real for you, and I just heard what you did last night. Oh, God's forgiven, and his grace is rich, and his mercy is full. But don't take the gospel lightly. You can't live in a way that seeks to please people around you and live in a way that pleases God. Sometimes, sometimes our identity, here's the second thing. Sometimes our identity, how we see ourselves, is tied to all the wrong things and not to the only thing that matters. Look at verse 15. We ourselves... We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And Paul is saying to Peter, look, I I know who we are by Jews, as Jews. I know what we've been taught from birth. I know what you've been taught from birth. I know what I was taught from birth. But it doesn't matter. Because we are not defined by the things biologically or culturally that our culture says defines us. You're not defined by your ethnicity. You're not defined by your nation. You're not defined by the region of the world in which you live. You're not even defined by your religious identity. I don't want to know, honestly, I don't want to know that you're a Baptist. I want to know that you're a believer. I don't want to know that you're a Presbyterian or Methodist. I want to know that you love Jesus. None of those things matter in the eyes of God. That you're male, that you're white, that you're Southern, that you're American, That you're Republican? Those must not be primary priority shapers of our identity. Listen to what Paul says here. We ourselves who are Jews by birth, we know what it is ethnically, culturally, nationally, politically, and every other way. We know what it is to be a Jew. We're not Gentiles yet. Yet, look at verse 16, yet we know, the word know means to know deep inside our souls that a person is not justified by the works of the law. And he will repeat this contrast over and over again. We're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified So you have done what you thought you needed to do to become a Christian. You have believed. That's wonderful. You have been baptized. That's glorious. You have joined a church. Good for you. 
But if God is not at work changing your life, all of that is a useless work that has no ability to change our lives. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. You know what he's talking about here? Here's the person who says, I believe I'm a Christian, but I'm living in ways that are contrary to what the Bible teaches. I'm living outside the church. I'm not living in the context of giving myself to the word of God. I don't love people as I should. I'm not serving sacrificially in any way. I'm still living in my sin. Does the fact that I said I believe in Jesus justify me in spite of the fact that I'm still living in my sin? Paul answers, certainly not. Certainly not. And then he says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, that is the law of God that shows us our sin, I died to the law so that I might live to God. When God enters our lives by the power of his Holy Spirit, he tears down every wall, every wall that we count on to produce for us the right kind of life. He tears it down. And we look only to Jesus. What if you start rebuilding those walls? I'm a good person, I do good things, I'm morally decent, I work hard. What if we start rebuilding those walls? Then we're showing and rebuilding them and in depending on them that we really don't belong to Jesus. Because when we belong to Jesus, he changes us. He makes us new brand new and he keeps on making us new Paul tells us what that looks like Galatians 2:20 and 21 this is the key verse for the series Christianity in real time it is the focal point and God I believe drew me to this verse I want to unpack it for you very quickly Seven things here. Tick them off like bullet points. There's so much at stake 
This is such a burden on my heart. There's so much at stake in our day for the church. Our culture needs to see real churches. And to see real churches, they've got to see real Christians. I believe there are people who are not Christians because they watch Christians. I believe that. And they have enough Bible sense to know that God brings real change and they don't see real change. And I believe it's time for Christians to wake up, for revival to come. Praise God, send a revival. Let it begin in me, begin in this church. I don't care where you begin it, God. Please do it. Because the church in this country needs to be awakened. We need people who will live out Galatians 2.20 by the power of the Holy Spirit. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been. It's a verb form that means every day. Every day I am dying with Christ. I'm dying to myself. I'm dying to my desires. I'm dying to the need to be pleasing to people. I'm dying to every other identity that wants to consume me and control me. I belong to Jesus. Number two. It is no longer I who live. The Greek here is three words. Zo, ukate, ego. Zo, the life that God gives, the life that comes to us through Jesus Christ. That's how it's used in the New Testament. It's now life. My life is to be loyal to Jesus, to love Jesus. No longer, no longer ego. What do you and I get in English from ego? And the answer isn't waffles. What do we get? Ego. Go to a modern therapist and the therapist will say, what you need is increasing ego strength. You don't have good ego strength. You need to beef up your ego. Come to the Bible and it says, crucify your ego. You're not going to believe both. And life in Christ that he gives us is when we crucify ourselves. We die to ourselves. We sacrifice ourselves. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I live. Christ lives in me. The Lord Jesus lives in me. I say that Jesus is Lord and I'll do anything. I'll pay any price for that to come true. And the life I now live in the flesh, that means you live it in real time. In the real world, it is a war. I live by faith. Faith, surrender, submission. I've given my life to Jesus. I give my life to Jesus as Lord every day. I live by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because He loves me. How much does He love me? He gave His life for me. And if He loves me that much, I will give my life to Him. You know, I think... I think the biggest struggle among professing Christians in the church is this struggle. I believe this is real. I believe it's real in many of our hearts. Is Jesus really Lord?
Oh, oh, I, I've, I've been saved and he's my savior. Don't go there. Because you're going outside scripture. When you give your life to Jesus, you're bowing before Jesus alone as Lord. Paul says in the last verse here, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, if I could be right with God by what I do or what I say, if that could happen, if that were possible, Christ died for nothing. But he died to save people known to him from before the foundation of the world, for whom he shed his blood, and he brings us into a relationship with him, and so breaks us before him, that in tears over our sin and in sorrow over who we are from birth by nature, we look up to him and say, Jesus... your Lord, and joyfully, enthusiastically, gladly, no matter what it costs, I'll live for you the rest of my life. That is a Christian. Father, bring your word to our hearts to confront and to comfort and even this day to call sinners to Jesus. In his name, amen.